Hear the word of God from Judges 3, 7 through 31. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Reshathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Reshathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for forty years, until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Malachites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for eighteen years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their lord fall onto the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shangar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He, too, saved Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Waypoint Church. I'm glad that you guys can appreciate some good humor in a biblical story. Uh, My name is Eric Weiner. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, And it's so good to to be in the book of Judges with you all this morning. 
Uh, now this morning we're, we're in the second week of, of, our, of our series through, through the book of Judges. And, and prior to that we are going through the book of, of Joshua. And if you remember, Joshua ended with this call for covenant renewal. The Lord has established a relationship with his people. He has proven his faithfulness in this relationship. He's invested. He's saying, I'm all in. And he wants Israel to be committed too. Now I say this to my kids often. I, I, I look at them and I say, hey, come here. And they're like, what? <laughs> what? I'm like, come here. One will say, no, I didn't do anything. <laughs> they already know to say that. It's like, what's that have to do with what I said? Come here. I want you to be with me. I want to be with you. And they reluctantly come here. <laughs> See, God invites us into relationship with him. He's telling us, come here. He's calling you to him. Now, the conclusion of the book of Joshua includes this, this famous call to the people. He lays out the history of what God has done for them, how God has shown himself to be faithful. And then he says this, this interesting thing. He says this interesting thing. He says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, that's an interesting way of saying that. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Maybe some of you lived in a home where that plaque was over your mantel place or something like that. In this house, we serve the Lord. You see, Joshua, Joshua's the leader of the people and he's on his way out. He's learned what it requires to have a relationship with this God. What he's trying to convey to the people is that God is faithful. And they know that. They just lived that. We know that. God is faithful. But you must understand that just as he is faithful to fulfill his promises, he will also be faithful to hold you to account. Joshua knows this about God. That, that's, the, that's the splash of cold water in the early morning hours right in your face. That's the wake-up call. That's, that's Joshua saying, are we really ready for this? Are you really ready for this? And as, as Pastor Lawrence made clear last week, we can't be half-hearted in our relationship with the Lord. Now notice that Joshua is stressing a choice. A choice that we all have to make. The fact that Joshua wants Israel to choose which God they will serve tells us something about us as people. There's something about choosing whom you will serve that is inescapable to human nature. No matter how much the modern mind is convinced, we've progressed beyond religious activity. The thoughts, emotions, Feelings, desires, and will are all present among your members. They will be filled, attracted, intensified, and subdued by something, towards something. You are giving your life in service to something all the time. 
The choice that Joshua presents to Israel is no different than the choices that are put before you and I on a regular basis. I mean, we are overwhelmed by our choices. We wish our options were as clear as he laid it out for them. So how do we prioritize? How do we, how do we get things in order? How do we know which, which choices to make, which things to prioritize, which things to choose? Well, we know ourselves. We know what compels us. We know what we're attracted to. We know what we want most. Tim Keller says that whatever captures the heart's trust and love also controls the feelings and behavior. What the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. This is how we operate. Now, we, we have elevated the mind as the ruling function of the human person. So we empower one another when we ask, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What we are, what we think. We have become our ideas. But the Bible tells us something different. Says this way of thinking is, has led us to un- underestimate something even more powerful than how we think. Something even more powerful underlying our motivations. What do you want? When people come to Jesus, he says, What do you want? What do you want? This is why the choice between the Lord and other gods is a worthy question. The worship of idols comes naturally to us. It's a rational exchange. This this system is appealing because it offers a way to feed our wants. It works like this. If I do X, then I'll get Y. If I put in X, then I'll get Y. And you know what? I really, I really want Y. So I'm, I'm willing to do X. But God is not an operating system to figure out He doesn't work this way. And it frustrates us because we put in X and we're saying, God, why didn't you give me Y? Religious people, we want God to work that way. We think if I have a good quiet time or if I'm growing in my prayer life, then then God will love me. But for us, it's not really about God loving me. It's really if I do these things for God, then he'll bless me. I want God to bless me. I want him to give me what I want. From our vantage point, we we indulge in these religious compromises because it's really about control that feeds our desires. I'm willing to give a little here if it means getting a little there. We all do this. The problem with relating to anything in this way is that what we think we have control of today will eventually rule us tomorrow. It's the gradual downgrade. And that's what's happening in Judges. It's this gradual downgrade. Thankfully, the Lord cannot be manipulated and he relents no such control. If you really want to enter into relationship with him, it requires total surrender. Now, I know, I know that sounds appalling, to give your life over to something else like that, even though we're doing it. We think, no, I don't need to do that. 
And it's crazy because it's the only path that leads to freedom. God does not tolerate our partial concessions. He doesn't give license to our sinful habits. He frees us from them. And this should really interest us because we are all in need of saving. Now, before we jump into our text this morning, I want to make this very clear. We are talking about choices and desires and wants. And the Bible, the Bible is supposed to correct our choices, right? I mean, the Bible has something to say about our lives and why we are the way we are and what we should do about it. And I believe that. I believe that the Bible speaks to us and has something to say to us. But if you read the Bible looking for heroes, you'll either be disappointed, confused, or both. The book of Judges is not some exemplary book telling us about national heroes. I mean, Othniel is probably not even a native Israelite. I mean, he, son of Kenaz. Who, wh wh which tribe is that, right? Ehud, Shamgar, Shamgar's probably an Egyptian mercenary. That's confusing. He saves Israel. Ehud is a mixed bag. I mean, he's, he's not your model leader here. You see, the book of Judges is not for people whose lives are just one long crescendo into heaven. The book of Judges is for people who experience the dark days of life. It's for people whose lives sometimes feel out of control or who wonder how God is involved in the midst of sin and stupidity. Yeah, I said it, stupidity. Can I just admit right now that I make some really stupid choices? I mean, like really, really stupid choices. Like my three and my four-year-old will say, Daddy, you shouldn't do that. And I'm like, you know what? Well, yeah, you're right. Does God have anything to do with people and circumstances like that? who experience the dark days of life, who walk through the bad choices of life. So if your life is that blessed crescendo where there is no sorrow or sin, judges might not be for you. But if you've chosen to trust in yourself over God again and again and again, then you need to hear that God can work through that. Today we look at a few judges that give us insight into how God brings help to those in need. But truly the role of these judges may be to shock us into seeing that we, we need something more than human ingenuity to save us. If this is the best God has to work with, and, and, and this is supposed to be the good judges, these are the good judges, then we need something more. This just won't do. Now keep in mind that these stories and, and judges are arranged not necessarily to be chronological, but to show the downward moral and spiritual unraveling of Israel. I mean, this is what it looks like to, to break covenant with God. It's not a one-time occurrence. It's, it's not quick. You see this diagram? It's, it's a slow downgrade. It's an unraveling. They do the same thing over and over and over again. They, they're not winding back up in the same place. They're getting farther and farther away. What we're seeing is that human means for salvation can seem nice, can seem interesting, but ultimately they're fleeting and waning. Which God will you choose? By which means will you choose? 
First, we look at Othniel. And everything spoken about Othniel checks all the boxes. I mean, he's, he's representative of the tribe of Judah. He's connected to Caleb and, and the previous leadership of Joshua. He's a natural leader. He brings deliverance. He yields to the power of the Spirit. But ultimately, Othniel falls short. Now, don't get me wrong. 40 years of peace in the land is awesome. But 40 years of peace followed by 18 years of oppression sounds as nice as 50 years of great health followed by 20 years of chronic pain. It's not enough. We want so much more. Now, the Othniel account is, is the perfect cookie-cutter version of what God is trying to do, God's deliverance. It covers all the bases of the story. The people forget God. The Lord hands them over to their enemies. They experience oppression in the land, and they cry out for help. The Lord hears them, and he raises up a deliverer, and the judge rescues them, and peace is restored. End scene. You see this again and again throughout the book. We'll see it again. We'll see the pattern again. And what do we learn here? We learn that God is just. We learn that he holds people account to their sin, that he responds to the cries of the people, that he's a God of salvation. Right? We know these things. But here, here's where we must be careful. Again, we're talking about our wants. A story like Othniel, we've heard this before. We know these things about God. But to look upon God's grace as boring and predictable, is that not the first step from commitment to complacency? Grace, grace may be what we need, but it doesn't entertain us. And we want to be entertained. And I think there's, there's something wrong about that that we really need to think about. That God's grace, that God is gracious, it should leave us into gratitude. It should lead us to honest self-reflection and a desire to open ourselves up to receive more. As I see my sin more, it's magnified so I can receive grace more. It's magnified. Judges 3.7 says the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. The people forgot God, which means they were no longer ruled by what they knew from God. But it's never only a turning away. They didn't just turn away from knowing God. They turned to know something else. They put on something else. Judges 3.7 gives us a time lapse, a conclusion of becoming in a single sentence. Surely we don't just forget God. I mean, how do you just forget God? I mean, that sounds clumsy and forgivable. And even when you forget, somebody could just remind you. No, this is beyond that. They turned to other means to provide for their wants. This is a turning to other gods to provide what they are unsure that God will give. What is sobering about doing evil in the eyes of the Lord is that it's the Lord saying it. Do you see the problem? What is evil in the eyes of the Lord 
seems good to us. What is evil in the eyes of the Lord seems good to us. The people did what was right in their own eyes. What we are doing seems right to us. We do what seems right to us. But what does the Lord think? Do you truly understand the relationship He wants to have with you? Do you know His love for you? Do you know His patience with you? And do you know that He will hold you to account? Now let me be clear, because, because I fear that when, what you hear me saying right now is perform for God. Be scrutinized by God. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is out of a place of acceptance through the blood of Jesus, live in God's peace. This doesn't mean do nothing. You don't just do nothing in, in, in response to God's grace. It, it means open yourselves up more to Him. Those who perform for God do religious practices to their spiritual exhaustion. But those who live for God are struck by their newfound freedom to live as they never could on their own. It's an unburdening. I mean, when you encounter Jesus, though he experienced great trouble, you've never seen someone so free. You just can't shake it. You look at Jesus and then you look back at yourself and you consider, I want to I be like that. I've never seen someone like that. You know what? I would give my life to be as free as he is. And so you do. You give up the former things. The things that are in bonding you, that are enslaving you. You turn around and you say, Jesus, wait for me. And you follow him. What these beginning chapters of Judges show us is what happens when you go the other way. It's the Canaanization of Israel. In Joshua, God made it very clear not to engage in the practices of the surrounding world. The Lord establishes the kind of relationship He wants to have with us. He tells us the very things that will turn our eyes away. And then we go through the motions because we're bored, we're tired, or we don't have time for it. The most important thing about the Othniel story is that when you read it, it's undeniable who's really bringing about salvation. But it's a story we've heard before. And if that's, if that's our posture toward God, I've heard this before. It begs the question, how much do the allures and fascinations of the world around me that are coming at me on a daily basis, how much do those things distract me from seeing what the Lord is really doing in my life? Do you understand what I'm saying? How much do the allures and the fascinations, the things that attract us, all these things that are coming at me all these things I'm choosing to, to go toward when I'm putting my eyes in front of, how much do those things distract me from seeing what the Lord is really up to in my life? Is the Lord really active in my life? It's, it's a fair question. It's a question that we, we all, honestly, we have this. But what are we doing to truly tune our eyes and our ears to encounter the Lord? 
Do you not hear and do you not see because he does not work and he does not speak? Or is it because you do not look and you do not listen? And so surely the, conclu- the conclusion is already set for you. Our salvation is not one of effort on our part. But that doesn't mean that the Christian life is void of effort. What we need to understand is in which direction our effort ought to go. It's to tune our, our ears and our eyes and ultimately our hearts to look to Jesus. Because if we're honest, most of our weeks are spent looking away from him. And there's an effect that's going on. That has an effect on who we are, on who we're becoming. But we can easily turn back to him. He's saying, come here. I want to be with you. At the close of the Othniel account, Othniel dies. At the opening of the Ehud account, Israel does evil. What does that tell us? It tells us that we need a Savior that can sustain the salvation he accomplishes. Temporary solutions are not enough. Neither is temporary salvation. The solution is not to try harder. It's to turn back to the Lord. To open up ourselves to seeing things how God sees them and to trust in the solutions that he has to offer us. You see, brokenness over sin isn't meant to produce cynicism or low self-esteem. Brokenness over sin has the cross in view. It's meant to show us our limitations and a growing sense of our need for more of God's grace. More of God's grace. You can receive it. Now, as we shift gears here, I, I want you to notice all, all these word plays as we're, we're looking at the, the story of Ehud and Eglon. All these word plays in, in the text. Verse 15 says that the, the Israelites cried out for help and the Lord gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud, Ehud's name literally means where is the splendor or where is the majesty? And this meaning should not be lost on us. It's probably meant to echo the sentiment of where is the glory? Where is the glory to be found in this text? It's a pretty bleak time in Israel's history. I mean, these are the dark days. This is darkness, despair. They're under oppression. 18 years of of Moabite rule. They've experienced bondage for 18 years. That's, That's a whole lifetime of a child in your house. And yet Israel tells their story with, with a sense of humor. You, you caught on to it. All the, the, the bathroom humor, right? All, all these things. Is not lightheartedness and laughter in the aftermath of such misery a sign of freedom and rest in the sovereignty of God? Is not lightheartedness and laughter in the aftermath of such misery a sign of freedom and rest in the sovereignty of God? I think we're supposed to catch on to the fact that the humor is an effect of the healing that Israel has walked through. As Dale Ralph Davis says, God makes his people able to laugh at their sorrow and to smile over the funny ways he has of delivering them from their troubles. Laughter doesn't come just from stewing in the torment. It comes from a humbling of ourselves and a growing faith in the Lord of our salvation. Ehud is a glimmer of hope in the midst of these dark times. 
It's, it's interesting when you compare the stories of Othniel and Ehud. Othniel is, is very clearly following the Lord's lead. He has the spirit come upon, upon him and he, and he overcomes the oppressors. But with Ehud, during the primary action in the story, God's name is, is nowhere to be found. We hold them up to each other. It's an interesting omission. And it's, it leads to, again, a compelling question. Where is the majesty? Where is the splendor? Or is this as good as it gets? Many of us can look back to a time in our lives when we, we clearly were not walking with the Lord, even if for what now feels like a moment. And it's crazy how over time God, God can turn what felt like a chapter in your life into a footnote along the way. We think, what was I thinking in those days? Why, why did I make those choices? If you've ever journaled, you've probably, you've probably gone back and looked at a journal entry and thought, who is that? How did God find me here? And what stories like these remind us of is that with God, we should never grow as hopeless as the circumstance demands. We can't predict the future, but we do know that our God reigns. And even if our lives fall apart, even if our worlds come caving in, our God is a God of resurrection. And he can bring life from even the bleakest of situations. Now again, the, the writer of Judges is, is very intentional to include details about Ehud's family lineage and the fact that he's left-handed. Ehud is a Benjamite. Ehud is a Benjamite. That seems, that seems kind of trivial. Did you, do you know what the name Benjamin means? Anybody? We have, is, we have a Benjamin in here? Where's where Ben? It means son of the right hand. That's interesting. Son of the right hand. Right, right hand has a positive connotation in the biblical account. For example, when the Bible refers to God's strength, it often refers to what? His right hand. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. But here we have Ehud from the tribe of the son of the right hand who plots to take out the Moabite king with his left. It foreshadows the irony of the story, but it, but it also may say something about the deceptive nature of Ehud. He's probably influenced by, by the increasingly Canaanized environment in which he lives. He's clever. He's opportunistic. And in this case, he's, he's violent. But the dark days of the judges should remind us that God is able to use messy and imperfect people as his instruments for deliverance. God uses what's available to him to reveal our sin and to demonstrate his holiness and his glory. Now, the name Eglon. Eglon, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect you to have any idea what Eglon means. Eglon means young calf. And there's an interesting feature. Maybe, maybe as you're listening to it, you thought, well, that's kind of rude. I wouldn't say it that way. The fact that the only notable feature given about him is, is that he's fat. Is, it, it's not meant to be rude. I mean, it's it's meant to be humorous. I mean, the story you were laughing is humorous. But it's making a slight at, at Moabite rule. Eglon would have been fattened by collecting the tributes from his oppressive rule of the Israelite people. Literally, what you can take from this is that Eglon is the fattened calf being prepared for the slaughter. 
That's what the text is saying. Keep in mind that the Israelites hearing this story would have, would have found this funny. But Judges is not Israelite propaganda trying to mock their former oppressors. Truly, as, as Daniel Block says, the intent is to challenge the Israelites to reflect on their own condition. Far from being the noble people they claim to be, in their Canaanite state, they have been reduced to less than the Moabites. What unfolds is a series of events in which Ehud pays tribute to Eglon in Eglon's palace in, in Jericho of all places. We've encountered Jericho. Ehud leaves and then he comes back with a secret message. Now in Hebrew, the, the word for message can mean a word, a matter, or a thing. So Eglon is probably expecting an additional gift or, or maybe to be tipped off about some kind of traitorous plot. Ironically, Ehud gets straight to the point. The guards who had left unwittingly, they just leave. Silly. They return to the inner room of the palace to find the doors locked. He must be relieving himself. They think Heklon is relieving himself, which gives Ehud enough time to make his exit. Verse 28 is the first time since verse 15 that the story of Ehud even mentions the gracious work of God in their deliverance. Ehud says, follow me. For the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. Up to this point, the story of Ehud and, and how it recounts the tactics for the assassination of Eglon, it, 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 seems, it, it seems like a typical ancient Near Eastern coup, straight out of the Canaanite playbook. Maybe it'd make for an interesting movie. It's a clever scheme. You can go back and trace how he, how he did it. They wouldn't have checked his, to, they wouldn't have thought he'd be left-handed. And what to make of Ehud can be speculated, honestly, in either direction. Is he a hero? Is he a villain? Is he somewhere in between? Do we need like a biopic on him to, to kind of you know, go deeper? And... But maybe we're not supposed to neatly categorize him. I think the author intends to capture him in some ways how, how he is. And we're not left to judge him, but to, to reflect on our own lives. And to draw our attention back to the Lord. What is clear is that Ehud is, is God's appointed deliverer. And as we said earlier, God can use broken, undeserving people to accomplish his means. Ehud is not an adequate savior. Not because he didn't help in this moment. But truly he did not change the conditions of the hearts of the people. They will look away again to change the conditions of their hearts, they will need to look to another savior. God still works in surprising ways, but a, tar a heart turned inward can't always see him moving. So this week, consider how you can turn your gaze away from yourselves and find rest in the saving work of God. Turn your heart back out to him Friends, you must know that God has established a new and better relationship with us. He's calling you. He's saying, come here. Come be with me. In the book of Jeremiah, God speaks of this new relationship when he says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. 
I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And so this morning, we turn our attention to the Lord's table where we are called to remember the relationship that our God has established with us. You have a choice to make. Whom will you serve? You need a Savior. Jesus is his name. He was empowered by the Spirit, and he abided in the Father. He submitted himself to the point of death, but there in death he did not remain. And through him you have new life, a new heart, the Spirit empowering you to walk in relationship with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention to the Lord's table this morning, your table, the table that you have set for us, God, there are so many things in this life that draw us away from you. But God, we know that you, you are calling us to yourself. God, may we turn our eyes right now. May we turn our ears right now. May we turn our hearts toward you right now in this place, together as your people, to remember the things that you've done. God, that we, we will not forget you. God, by the work of your spirit, God, would you help us that we would not forget you, but that we'd keep walking in faith. And as we take of this meal together, may we remember these things and rejoice in you, the one who gives us true freedom Real life, new life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we turn to the Lord's table this morning, uh, as you came in, many of you were able to receive the, the elements of the, the, the bread and the cup. If you can pull those out. If, you, if you've not had a chance to, to receive that yet and you would like to, I uh, invite you to just raise your hand. We'll have people coming throughout the room to, to, to provide that for you. Now, we believe that this is, this is meant to be a family meal among fellow believers as a sign of the relationship that we enjoy, that we have received, that we have decided to, to walk in by faith through the power of the Spirit, through the Son who saves. He has given us fellowship with the Father. We come to have communion with this same Jesus who has promised to be with us always to the end of the age. And in the breaking of the bread, in the drinking of the cup, he makes himself known, the sacrifice that, that he has made on our behalf. This bread is the true heavenly bread that strengthens us 
unto life eternal. The bread represents his body, which was broken for you at the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. So as you take and eat, do this in remembrance of him and the forgiveness that you receive. And in the cup of blessing, he comes to us as the vine in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit. Notice again, it's not, it's not our effort to earn our salvation. Our effort is learning how to abide as we receive more and more of what God is doing in our lives. This cup is a symbol of the new covenant in Christ's blood. And in Christ, there is freedom Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of him. Take and drink. Those who take and eat of this meal come in hope, believing that this bread and this cup is a pledge and a foretaste of the feast of love of which we all shall partake when the kingdom has fully come. When with unveiled face, we shall behold him, made like him in glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we, we receive this meal in remembrance of the work of our Savior. God, you are the one true Savior that we needed. And in your perfect time, you came to deliver us, to free us of sin and to give us new life, to walk in freedom, God. I pray that we would, we would live in that. God, teach us, get, fill us with your spirit. Teach us how to bear the good fruit as we seek to love one another and love the, the people around us that you've called us to minister to, God. As we, as we seek to be your people, as we seek to live in a relationship with you, God, may we turn to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.